0: And if you've got a Bible handy, you can turn over to 2 Peter. The passages will be on the screen, as always, Lord willing. Um, but there's also uh, every chance that, uh, you know, mistakes can be made. So you want to look at your Bible. If you've got it, you can look at one in the chair in front of you. Somewhere in the row in front of you is probably one. And if you don't own one, just grab that one and take it home with you. Um, all right, so um, we start in Second. 2- Peter. Peter, we're still in chapter 1, we're starting at verse 16, but as always, uh, verse 16 starts with a connecting word, for. So we're going to have to unpack just a little bit. I'm going to build up again, starting at the beginning of this letter. Peter is saying he wants to stir us up. He wants to remind us of certain things to be true, to remind us of the good gift that Jesus gave us. Everything we need for abundant life and godly living. Everything we need for abundant life and godly living, he has given us, and Peter wants to remind us of this, make sure this is in our mind, make sure we know this, that we understand this, and he's going to keep reminding us of what that life looks like. Why? Why him? Why here? I'm glad you asked. That's what he's going to start answering in verse 16. For... We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So why does Peter feel particularly justified in coming back to this message over and over again? It's because this isn't secondhand information for him. This isn't something he heard from somebody. It's not something he had taught to him. No one convinced him that this was the case. They weren't piecing together the clues, there was no Tucker Carlson special, no Don Lemon hit piece, nothing to change their thinking about this stuff. They saw it, they were there, they experienced it. There's not some clever teacher, no philosopher, no rabbi, creating a string of beliefs that came together. This wasn't even their own interpretation of the events. Not even their own interpretation of some of the other events, of the crucifixion or, or the resurrection. This account we're going to look at today is from the eyewitness of three men of a very special event. You need to hear, in fact, this is why I and other teachers of Scripture should defer to Scripture in all matters. If you're going to hear another preacher, or you listen to a podcast, or you listen to one online, or you, have a, you go to a life group or a class, and there's anyone who's teaching God's Word, and they're teaching it in such a way that they don't seem to think it's the most important thing to be spending time on, then they're doing it wrong. Um, no matter what they proclaim, no matter what they say about God's Word, if then they just ignore God's Word for the whole rest of the sermon, that should be a warning sign for you. That's not how this is supposed to work. This is key. Here's one of the, there's many reasons why that's the case. Here's one of them. Some of you think I'm, some of the young people especially think I'm pretty old. But I wasn't there. I wasn't there for any of this. I didn't see any of this stuff happen. I am not an eyewitness of the events of Scripture. I didn't see it. I didn't see the thing that John talked about when we studied through the book of John. I wasn't there for Mark's understanding of Peter's experiences. I I wasn't there for any of Jesus' direct teachings. I didn't get to put my fingers through his wrists. And I doubt if I'll get the chance to do that, at least on this side of judgment. That being the case, we need to unpack this idea of eyewitnesses for a minute. Um, We can get this confused. On September 11th, 2001, a bunch of Muslim terrorists proved that they really believed what they claimed they believed. I don't think any of us would call their faith into question. I hope not. They really believed it. And they proved it. They rode on a bunch of airplanes and flew it into the side of some buildings and killed themselves and a whole bunch of other people because they believed what they claimed to believe. Which has absolutely no bearing on whether or not what they believed is true. None. All it proves is they believed it. That's what it proves. They didn't see it. They weren't there, they weren't eyewitnesses, they apparently, um, the founder of their religion, what he taught and what their holy book instructs, they apparently took it very literally and very seriously, but they weren't there. They weren't in a cave on Mount Hira in 610 A.D. as Muhammad claims that an angel, the angel Gabriel came to him and gave him a new gospel, 610 years after the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, an angel came to him. How many eyewitnesses were were there to this event? One. One man claimed that this is what happened to him. That's it. That our confidence is understand what these men did on September 11th. They had to rely on the reason and validity of the claims of their one eyewitness. If all we had was the Apostle Paul, if that's all we had, was someone who had a supernatural experience and was knocked off a horse on the road to Damascus and was given a new gospel. And that's all we had was one guy who might be crazy, who has a crazy experience that may make him a prophet or may make him a delusional madman, which is what Muhammad went back and asked his wife which one she thought he was. If that's all I had, I don't think I'd be a Christian. If that's all there was. Was the testimony of an angel and one man in total isolation. That's the same story for Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon religion. One eyewitness in isolation, a message from an angel with a brand new gospel. And what a lot of Christians don't realize is this conversation about eyewitness experience, these eyewitness testimonies, they are vital to the Christian faith and not ignored at all. Like you just heard Peter making the claim. This isn't something someone told me. I was there for this. I saw this. This is not a matter of, I had just accepted. Not only does he make this claim, listen to how important the eyewitness concept is in the Christian faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, "...for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." That he appeared to Cephas. That's another name for Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. (coughs) And then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is Paul referencing the eyewitness testimony. See, the reason... If, I, if in the church world, if you grew up in the church world, and the pastor says, someone get up and tell me the good thing that God has done for you, what does the pastor say? up, get up and tell me your testimony. That's right. Or they'll say, give me a witness. All right? Those are legal terms for a reason. We're making a legal claim, a historical legal claim. And we are saying, I am a witness to something that happened in my life, and I can give that as testimony. This really happened. That's what was going on with these people. And the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, you don't, have to, you don't want to believe me? Fine. Go ask Cephas. He was there. Actually, ask any of the 12. They saw it. You can't, don't have access to any of them? That's all right. There were 500 people who saw it all at one time. Go ask any of them. Some of them are dead, but most of them are still alive. Just go ask. He's encouraging and inviting this experience. <clears throat> you should go ask some of the eyewitnesses. Because eyewitnesses are super important to us, because we weren't there. Thomas, the Apostle Thomas, the most famous of the eyewitnesses, because he was also a skeptic. I don't think it's fair that we give him doubter. I've, I've told you that before. I don't like the word doubt when it applied to Thomas. I think that's unfair. I think he's skeptical, and as we talked about between the sermons, maybe stubborn. Stubborn would be good. Jesus told him not to believe when people told him that they had seen him. Remember, that happens back in Matthew 24, that Jesus says, when people say they've seen me, don't believe them. He's talking about further down the road, but Thomas hears it, and Thomas is skeptical and apparently stubborn. Listen to this in John 20, 24 through 29. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So Jesus had shown up. Thomas missed it. The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, listen to this, by the way, listen to the emphatic nature of his message, the, the, the words he uses here. You've got to love this guy. He's so important to me because as an eyewitness, if he was convinced in the end, it's fair to say I would have been. If I had been there and I'd been there instead of Thomas, it would have convinced me. Here's what he says. Unless I see his hands, in his hands the marks of the nails, and I place my fingers into the mark of the nail, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Well, is, these are guys he's been traveling with for three years now he's been hanging out with these guys he's been sitting under the teaching of Jesus for three years they've been camping out and walking and living even faced some persecution and challenges and they come to him and say hey we saw Jesus and Thomas being the man that he is says I don't believe you I don't care who you are I don't care what you claim until I see, in fact the way he says it I love here until I see with my own eyes no, nope. you know what until I stick my fingers in his wound, I'm not going to buy it. That's what it's going to have to take. In fact, I'm going to stick my hand up in the wound in his side. I'll double down on you guys. Till that happens, I'm not believing. It's not going to happen. I can't be convinced by anything you guys do. Here we go. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. That's cool. And he said to them, peace be with you, because that's probably not the first, first, your first thought when someone just appears in a room, in a locked room with you is to go, I should now be at peace. That's probably not the first thing you think. So he tells him, hey, chill. That's the, that's the old Bible way of saying, chill, it's okay. Then he says to Thomas, and by the way, there, if there's any other conversation here, we don't know what it is, but he apparently walks straight up to Thomas, holds out his arms, and says, put your fingers there. Now, i said before that I've always imagined that in the moment, Thomas may have been like, no, nah, okay, no, I believe it now. Nah, it's, it's good. Because it says, place your fingers here and see my hands. Notice Jesus references both things that Peter, that I mean, that Thomas said. Jesus overheard that conversation, obviously. So he comes in and says, put your fingers here and see that it's there. And maybe Thomas is like, no, really, it's, it's good. I, I, I can see them. That's, that's, I believe it now. We don't know this, but I think probably Jesus was not going to tolerate that. And he's like, no, nope, take your fingers. And he just right through that hole. Other one? Good. Convinced? Oh wait, you said something else, didn't you? How about this big wound over here? See, the, Thomas knew that Jesus was dead. That's how convinced Thomas was that Jesus was dead. Jesus wasn't just dead, Jesus was Roman dead. When the Romans killed you, you stayed dead. You were totally dead, all the way dead. None of this partial death stuff, you were all the way dead. If they weren't sure, they, they tested. That's what the whole spear in Jesus' side was. <laughs> they were testing to see if he was really dead, <clears throat> which I've always thought is one of those hilarious, like eh, it's kind of a double purpose. There, like, is he dead yet? <laughs> no, he was fine. But I mean, I mean, he's dead now. So he's like, I think he was okay until until I stuck the spear up in his side. The. This was proof. They, they knew their medical science. They knew that how to prove that a body was dead, especially one that died of crucifixion. They understood this. They tested him. He was dead. Thomas knew he was dead. He was completely dead. And when the Romans make you dead, you stay dead. And Thomas does not get... Listen, I know you guys want Jesus to still be alive. He's dead. And I go, I'm telling you, we saw... It. Can you imagine, by the way, there's eight days between this. Imagine what those seven days were like with Thomas and the others. How much... They probably fought non-stop for the next seven days... And you can imagine Thomas all by himself. Nope. Mm-mm. Ain't going to it. You all have friends like this, right? And ain't going to... I'm not doing it. I'm not buying it. I'm telling you. He didn't... Nope. Mm-mm. I'm not... Anyway, so... My, when Thomas answered him... Oh, he said... And placed it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him. My Lord and my God. That's a massive theological leap from he's dead to he is Lord and God, and he's not just a Lord and God, he's my Lord and God. Thomas is absolutely, utterly, irrevocably convinced, and by the way, Thomas went on to be martyred, to die for this belief. Does that seem like something that a single eyewitness, like, that, like, oh, they're just making this stuff up. It's that's not, that's not feasible, it is not believable. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Peter is embracing this truth. I think Peter reveals to us the moment that convinced him. It doesn't require the ability to answer all things, by the way, to make a step of confidence and trust. It is is a lie that tells us, unless you know everything, you don't know anything. That's not true. That's ridiculous. Of course, we don't know everything. We just have to know enough. We just have to know enough to be convinced, enough to know that this is the truth, For Thomas, it was the wounds. And Jesus notes that those who are convinced without the same amount of evidence are blessed. For Peter, it seems to have been a moment in which there were only three eyewitnesses. I can't prove it, but I think Peter maybe is revealing here the moment in which he understood. Not everything, but enough. Remember when we went through John and when we went through Mark, how the disciples play this kind of comic role almost in the in the gospel accounts. They never know what's going on. They never understand the story. That's, they're missing it all the time. And, and they, never, they never get it. When you, when you um, read through it, like the book of John, either three or four separate times says, and then they finally understood. And then three or four chapters later, it's like, oh, and now they really okay, now they understood. And then through no, no, now, now they under- they weren't understanding. They weren't getting it. For many, it was the resurrection. Like Jesus' family, it was the resurrection. For one, it was the wounds. For me, by the way, it was the clear understanding of the existence of a God. That was step one. And number two, what was necessary to be true about God's nature. If there's a God, that God must be certain ways. And the way that the God revealed in this word not only met, but radically exceeded everything that I knew had to be true about God. That's what did it for me. What is the moment that Peter reflects on? Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We think of this as so, one of so many stories, but for Peter, this was a huge moment. This was similar to Moses and the burning bush when it comes to Peter. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and some say John, reference this exact moment, all the Gospels. But I want to pick the Luke account and show you something amazing, because I think that Peter is actually probably got the Luke account in front of him while he's writing this. Okay, so first I have to ask, who was here for last week's sermon? All right, so let me explain just a little bit, because some of you weren't. Um, I want you to understand, when we go into Scripture, we go into it with this mindset. There's a thing called hermeneutics, which is the art and science of studying Holy Scripture. Hermeneutics. Um, You don't have to know that name, but that's the concept. And there's several different ways to come at this, but the way I talk about it is the three kind of classical steps that people use different words here, and they're this, observe, interpret, and apply. So when we go to the Scripture, when we go to the Bible, first thing we need to do is observe, and we continue to observe, and then we observe some more. You read it. You look at it, you outline it, you unpack it, you divide it, you really dive into it, and then you start this transition as you're observing it that you try to then begin to understand what it looked like, not only to you, not only what you're seeing, but what the original writer was seeing. What did they mean? How were they, what was their context? And so that process of observation kind of naturally, organically melds into something called interpretation. Which interpretation is, is when we go into the original. What was the original meaning? What did the original author intend? What was the Spirit revealing? What was the context? What are the languages that they're in? And what do the words in the languages mean? And we dive into it deeper and deeper so that we can fully understand it. So we do most Sunday mornings here. And then in that process, so it's like we start here in 2022 observing... And then we slowly begin to, to, to rewind until we find ourselves back in the land of Israel, back understanding their context and their world. Um, it's one of the reasons we go to Israel. We're going in another few weeks to go to Israel again. That One of the reasons we go is to saturate ourselves in the context that they were in, to see it. Because even though I wasn't there 2,000 years ago, it is still pretty cool to go someplace and be like, oh, this is where that happened 2,000 years ago, right here. That's crazy. And so you, get, you dive into and you saturate yourself in the context, and then that naturally moves along and the truths begin to, what is true in here begins to grow out of that and we begin to see it. Then once we understand that truth and we understand the truth that's in the passage, then we come back to the year 2022 and we apply those truths to our lives here and now. That's hermeneutics, the art and science of studying Scripture. Okay, Last week, in doing that with the passage, I made the claim That Peter was connecting the account of the Hebrew exodus. I'll mention this more in a second. (coughs) The Hebrew exodus out of Egypt to his own eventual exodus into the promised land by way of his own death. That's what I believe he was doing. He was making that connection. As I give you the Luke account of the transfiguration, which I'll explain more in a second, I want you to listen, observe, keep your eyes and your ears open. Luke 9, starting in verse 27. But I tell you truly, <clears throat> there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they came fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you. One for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. A typical Peter. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one about the, those days, anything of what they had seen. So let's ponder this. Jesus takes the three up onto a mountain, no one knows which mountain, there's at least three of them in Israel that claim it, and all of them will charge you, happily charge you to come visit their mountain of transfiguration, but no one knows for sure which one it was, and he takes them up on a mountain to pray. Now, we know, Peter, James, and John, we know what they do when Jesus takes them somewhere to pray. What do they do? They sleep. That's what they do. They fall asleep. And so that's sure enough, they're, they're true to form here, they fall asleep when Jesus takes them up on the mountain to pray. <clears throat> so they're praying. Meanwhile, Jesus is transformed. Transfigured is the classical term. But the word here just means made different. But listen, not just a little bit different, categorically different. Different in a significant categorical sense. The example that the commentator used was, this, is, this means different as in difference from hidden and found. That's what's being described here. One thing, and then categorically something different, hidden and found, one transformed into the other. The different that he becomes is similar to the presentation of his glorified person in Revelation chapter one, blazing white, altered and changed, in his full glory. Further, Jesus is speaking to the representations of the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. Isn't it interesting that it's these two? It explains some a some, couple of important things to us. One is, it explains why we learn that, that the, Mos, the body of Moses had to be recovered. The body of Moses was recovered and brought back um, so apparently, so that God could bring him in glory to this conversation. We also know that Elijah and the chariot made out of fire who didn't die at all, went straight up into the heavens in the chariot of fire. Why? Why? I think we could argue, to be at this moment. See, it tells us that Jesus is in a conversation about what's about to happen to him. And I don't know about you, but if I was the Jewish Messiah, if I was the the Savior of the world, and I'm about to face the type of torture that he's about to face, the type of rejection that he's about to face, the wrath of God against the sins of man like he is about to face, I'd like to talk about it. I want to discuss it. I want to understand the full ramifications of it. I want to understand how it all plays together. I want to be engaging with this in a new way. And I want to have that conversation. If I'm going to have that conversation, if I'm going to have somebody comfort me and come to me as a man, um, even though I am the God man, but going to come alongside me in my fear, in my anxiety, in my understanding, I think the very representation of the law himself and the very representation of the prophets themselves would be a great choice. So here Jesus is having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. The three, of course, are asleep, Peter, James, and John. They wake up, and Peter says, hey, we ought to build tabernacles. We're going to build some tabernacles. Now, I don't, I don't know if he's making a pro, some kind of wrong proclamation about, like, like, you know, like we used to have for God. Or if he just means, hey, they're leaving. How do we keep them from leaving? Let's build some tents and then they can hang out. Listen, wherever it is you're going, we can make something just as comfortable for you here. Well, you just hang out here with us. I don't know exactly what it is, what, how Peter has stuck his foot in his mouth this time completely. I don't know exactly what he does that offends Almighty God the Father. <clears throat> is it the way he puts Jesus and Moses and Elijah on an equal playing field? Is it the fact that he leaves God the Father out of the conversation? Is it just that he's talking when he should be keeping his mouth closed? I don't know exactly what it is that Peter does here. I've, I've plenty of times had to go back and apologize for things that I've said. I'm one of those people. I say stuff, and then later, hopefully sooner rather than later, I've got to go back and say, yeah, that was, that was dumb. Boy, that seemed funny in my head. That's a common one for me. So that kind of thing, right? So I have to go back and apologize. What I haven't had happen is that I say something like that, and the Savior of mankind, the second person of the Trinity, and the representation of the law and the representation of the prophets all get still and look at me like I'm a total moron. But that's apparently what happened here. You can imagine all of them going like, oh, no, oh, no. And, and I've never had a cloud descend from heaven around me And you can imagine Peter, and I was like, I I think I may have made a mistake here. A Heaven comes straight down, envelops him, and God the Father speaks out of this moment. He proclaims Jesus as his son. He proclaims Jesus as his chosen one. He proclaims his love for his son. And he proclaims that, that Peter needs to stop talking and start listening. Listen to him. But do you remember the imagery that Peter used back in 12 through 15 about his own death? Representing the tabernacle as the body. Talking about this word establishment that he uses, which can be referenced to like stand something up with poles or whatever, like a tabernacle maybe. In verse, and then of course in verse 15, And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Remember when he said that? And do you remember that the term departure here, there's two different words that could be been used. Maybe there's several words that probably could have been used. But the word that's used here is the word that, that we use for Exodus. That's why I'm saying when I'm saying. I think Peter is relating the Exodus of the Hebrews to his own death. This term departure. Look back in verse 31. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and apparently God the Father are talking about Jesus' departure. Anybody want to guess what word is used here for departure? here on the mountain of transfiguration? You guessed it, it's Exodus. It's the same word that Peter used. In the verses we looked at last week, the tent and the departure language is almost identical to this moment. It's, it's a, it's, I think Peter is remembering back to the transfiguration as he is talking about his own life and his own death and the way it connects to the Exodus in such a powerful way. Perhaps it is a co- coincidence, but given that the passage is about this event, I just can't buy it. Peter now understands that he does not need to build a tabernacle for Jesus on earth because I think Peter has come to the understanding that he, like us, we are the tabernacle for Jesus on earth. That's us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want us to forget it. We are the representation of Jesus on earth. That's us. He doesn't want us to forget this message. He doesn't want us to misunderstand this, but he knows that moment when he saw Jesus in all of his glory on the top of the mountain and he heard the proclamation of the witness, not of another person, but of God the Father over his son. At that moment, Peter knew, okay, all right, this is something different. This isn't just a Jewish rabbi who we've been following around for a few years. There's something different going on here at a new level. And so he says in verse 19, "...we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention, as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing us first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." Now, some commentators believe that Peter here is directly linking the transfiguration to very specific Old Testament prophecies, Hebrew prophecies, and saying that that event confirmed them. Okay, Others say that it's a more general statement as to being a solid revelation into the identity of Jesus Christ. That's what the transfiguration accomplished when it comes to prophecy. Others would say that Peter is making the point that if this event was enough to convince him then all of those prophecies, which are even more clear, should be enough to convince us. Regardless, remember that a main role of prophecy is to prove the authenticity of the message being from God. There are so many prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ. I don't try to find a number because depending on who you ask, you get all this exorbitant different numbers that are all over the place. It's lots. There are a whole lot of things said about the person of Jesus that are then fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Enough that a reasonable person should be convinced by it. It is enough. That he would say, That's what Peter is saying. Listen, if you don't get to experience a voice from heaven, I'm telling you, I'm an eyewitness to it. I experienced it. And when they nailed the man to a cross upside down, he didn't recant. In fact, we have no evidence of any of the original eyewitnesses ever recanting. Not one that we know of ever recanted. Man, we can't plan a surprise birthday party without it getting out. I don't know about you, but the thought of holding a secret, hundreds of people holding a secret to the point of death being reasonable, sorry, that's not reasonable to ask me to believe that. That hundreds of people who all knew this was a lie all died for it or were willing to die for it. No, it's not how that works. <clears throat> Peter wants to encourage us to pay attention to these prophecies, to pay particular attention to them. And I think he, here he is particularly speaking to the person who's not yet convinced. There's so many that are fulfilled from his earthly and divine origins, locations, parentage, ministries, and so much more that we should be impressed by them. Remember we went through the book of Daniel together, and, and the, the problem with the book of Daniel is, is that the prophecies that Daniel makes are so specifically fulfilled that secular, stu- secular people, secular um, officers and students, say that it must have happened hundreds of years after when the Bible said it happened. In fact, what's wild is virtually the entire case for the later date of Daniel is because of the accuracies of his prophecies. That's virtually the entire argument. Well, no one could, could tell the future this accurately, so it must have been written after the events happened. That makes sense, doesn't it? That's called circular thinking. So for the uncertain person or the deconstructing person, these prophecies, studying them and looking into these proclamations that God makes are like a lamp in the night, something to look to and find comfort in until the heart is filled with the dawn's early light once again. And we face these challenges. Only those who have been awake at night, and and that's probably a decent percentage of East Texas people, only those who have been awake at night, out camping, out in the woods, on the hikes, in a place with dangers and predators and small insects that make noises in the brush that sound like a rampaging bear can understand this imagery. When it's dark and you feel all alone, a little light can be enough to carry you through. Just a little hope, just a little light. No matter how bad the situation gets, if there's a little spark out there, when the morning light reveals that all of the scary shadows were tree stumps and all of the scary noises were chipmunks. That allows us to hold on to the flickering light of the lamp that promises that God has made the truth, has revealed in His Word. That's what holds us in. Is it possible that Peter went through times like that? Well, sure. The loss of his family and friends, the unmet expectations of a God who doesn't jump when we say jump. Jump. Our own confusions begin to feel like night closing in on our faith. When things don't work out the way we want them to, when we grieve and when we hurt and when we face loss. When people we love or people we respect begin to scoff at the truth and even walk away from the faith. When we're disillusioned by religious leaders who turned out to be terrible people, look to His Word and find comfort. Stop looking to people for that kind of comfort. Look to these prophecies, not merely future telling, by the way, prophecies... Often in the church, we think of prophecies as telling the future. Prophecies are pronouncements of God's true message. Sometimes they have a futuristic or mysterious aspect to them, but that's actually relatively rare. Typically, it's a message of the truth that God has revealed. One of the reasons, if you've not gotten connected to this, we do a podcast through the church called the Reconstructed Faith Podcast, and it's a response to this tendency of people to deconstruct their faith now. And they run into this situation, and the problem is, they've run into something, they get a question, and it's a new question to them, and it's a scary question to them, and they don't know how to answer that question, so they begin to dismantle their faith. As we say over and over again in the the podcast, it may be a new question to you. It's not a new question. I promise. If it seems something insurmountable to you, chances are, there are tens of thousands of pages already written on it. It just because we run into something that in the immediacy we don't know how to respond doesn't mean there's not a response, there's not a way to engage. <clears throat> the, one of the most recent episodes, <clears throat> we had a young lady on who talked about her experience growing up in the church, <clears throat> holding on to her faith, and then she went to a Bible class with a guy named Dr. Bart Ehrman. Now, for those of you who don't know, Dr. Bart Ehrman is considered one of the leading scholars in New Testament studies in today's world. Almost, if you go to almost any secular school and you go to a New Testament class, um, the textbook is going to be written by Dr. Ehrman. Dr. Ehrman is an avid, aggressive enemy of Christianity and of the Bible. He is absolutely opposed to it. Um, he confesses later that it wasn't all of this, all of this um, uh, academic jargon that drove him away. It was, in fact, the problem of evil that he couldn't wrap his brain around. So he began to look for evidence, and now he spent the rest of his life investing in tearing down the gospel and tearing down the Bible. One of the sad things about Dr. Ehrman that's sad for me is, having read his books, he knows a lot of times when he's saying something that isn't true. He has to know it. In fact, I know see people who are in school with him, and they're like, he, he knows. Can you imagine, here's, here's your unbiased professor at your university, and this young lady had to write papers like, show how the religion of Paul and the religion of Jesus are two different religions. That's an unbiased approach to that, don't you think? Write in your paper, explain how the book of Acts has no historical accuracy. How about that for an unbiased paper this young Christian lady had? Who, by the way, on day one, all the Christians were required to stand. As she called them out and mocked them for not having actually read their Bibles. That's day one of the class. This is at a a public university. So here's what's wild. She comes out of that, not surprisingly, with some dents in her faith. And then comes to a program where Chris Sherrod was teaching and Chris begins to share some of the stuff that's honestly just the surface level understanding of some of these questions. And it it makes her cry because she realizes, oh wait, there's answers to all of this stuff. And what's really heartbreaking is Dr. Ehrman knows a lot of them. He just leaves them out because it doesn't back his viewpoint. It's not very professional or academic. So we begin to create this, we created this podcast mostly to begin to engaging with some of these questions that people run into and they're shocked by and they don't know what to do with it and they start dismantling or they watch whole churches now being dismantled around us as they fall apart because they were following a person or a bad doctrine or bad theology. And we see these, I've gone over this before, but we see people publish, they're deconstructing, they'll say, here's why I've deconstructed my faith, I'm now an ex-evangelical, I'm, I'm no longer a part of the church, I'm whatever, and you read their reasons and you're like, that's it? That pushed you off? You, I mean, read a book. These are, they're not impressive arguments. I know a lot worse ones. I'm glad they don't know those. Here's the thing that Peter's going to point out. If you're a skeptic like me, you immediately say, wait, surely Peter doesn't mean there's no such thing as a prophecy that does come from man or man's interpretation. Don't worry, our little heads. Peter has, has us covered. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. "'But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift, swift destruction.'" See, Peter would say that a, quote, false prophecy is just not a prophecy. A prophecy is an actual message from God, which those are the ones that come from God. Skeptics can unite with me in rereading verses 20 and 21 and understand that Peter is only referring to actual messages from Almighty God when he says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along with the Holy Spirit. So where do we find these? Where do we find these true prophecies that can be like a lamp, that can hold us through the dark night? We find them right here. You find them right there in that Bible that's in front of you. That's where we find these prophecies. That's where we find these proclamations of truth. And notice, once again, Peter says, knowing is the key. And that's the key to this letter. Remember, he wants us to live by the truth by knowing the truth. So where do I go to find his messages where I can find comfort like staring at a flickering flame in an otherwise overwhelming darkness, here in this word is where you find them. The truth that we can stand on when everything else is falling apart. In fact, on that word, let's stand with me if you will. We have this time of invitation to encourage you, the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Maybe you didn't know until today that there's good rational reason that this Jesus who came and lived and died and rose from the grave this was the, 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 the eyewitness accounts of hundreds, not one, hundreds of people who dozens of them made note of it. We have, we have at least about a half a dozen eyewitness accounts in the Holy Scriptures that we've got in front of us just of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these were people who then went on to face torture and death based on that proclamation. They were eyewitnesses and they behaved like eyewitnesses. This isn't just a matter of, oh, I believe it. It's for them, they were there for it. And they lived as though that was the truth. And that's what convinces me, is the testimony of eyewitnesses to who this, was, who this person was. I want to I close our time um, with a passage that I think, I'm going to reference Peter's passage and then the passage I think he's thinking of when he said it, when he wrote it down. But for those of you, if, you've, if you understand that there is a, a God and he has worked to save you and wants to save you and wants you to know him and you'd like to pray with somebody about that. You feel that tug of the Holy Spirit pulling you down to the front to pray with somebody. Don't resist that. Come on down let us pray with you. If you just want to come up here and pray at this altar for any reason at all or have it over in the corner and pray with somebody um, about anything at all, we'd love for that as well. If you're ready to join our dysfunctional family, you've already talked with our Welcome Home team and you're like, I'm ready. It's time to to have a, a church family. We'd love to have you come down here as well and we'll talk with you about it. Here's the passage, here's what what Peter wrote in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So let me read from Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation, I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey on my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path.